Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Georgia's Emergency Rental Assistance Program just stopped taking applications last month, citing low funds. But what's next for tenants seeking much-needed support? I'll ask the Deputy Commissioner for the Georgia Department of Community Affairs. Also, a new grant-funded project from Spelman College will create a data dashboard tracking the impact of women in STEM and a lot more. So we'll talk about all of that. But first this, the voter outreach nonprofit Vato Latino says they're activating a plan to reach 175,000 Latino voters in Georgia before the U.S. Senate runoff next month. President Maria Teresa Kumar says 30 percent of Latinos who voted in Georgia's 2021 runoffs were ages were between the ages of 18 and 29. This highlights the changing demographics playing out in Georgia, where young Latinos are the fastest growing electorate in the state. We know that for this runoff, whether young Latinos participate at the levels they did in 2021 or not, will determine the outcome. Now, this year's midterms, the Latino turnout rate actually dropped from 2018. Kumar says groups like hers have to reimagine how and how often they reach young voters. Speaking of voting, the Carter Center's Democracy Program is observing Georgia's risk-limiting audit as it checks the results of last week's election. Now, the organization has a long reputation of observing of observing elections and promoting democracy abroad. David Carroll directs the Center's Democracy Program. He says the Carter Center began observing U.S. elections in 2020 to combat growing mistrust. So we try to go to... Um elections uh, in countries where there's a lot at stake and democracy can either advance or is is under pressure. About 50 observers have been sent to county election offices across the state to watch the process of recounting votes in the Secretary of State's race. They'll make note of what works well and what doesn't to be released later in a public report. As Atlanta honors Transgender Awareness Week, advocates say resources for the community here are still not enough. Emily Wu Pearson has more from a vigil last night at Atlanta City Hall. Advocates, community members, and allies gathered in City Hall's atrium to remember the 32 trans people nationwide known to have died so far this year from targeted attacks. And at the end of the day, our job is not to live in fear because we're tasked with an assignment. That's Toy Washington Reynolds. She's the executive director of the Trans Woman of Color Healing Project, which provides community and care to trans women in rural Georgia communities. I like to do the important work by finding out what it is that was important to them and building on that so that we can build a legacy. Washington Reynolds was one of several community leaders at City Hall whose organization works to support trans people, from things like access to health care to building lasting friendships to helping entrepreneurs. 
She says seeing advocates and community leaders work together is a good start for keeping transgender people safe and healthy. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. Two teachers groups and the Southern Poverty Law Center are suing to block Georgia's divisive concepts law. The statute prohibits schools from teaching specific concepts around race, as we hear from Martha Dalton. The law bans the teaching of nine concepts. They include teaching one race is superior to another and that the U.S. is a fundamentally racist country. The National Association of Educators, its Georgia affiliate, and the SPLC say the law's wording is confusing. Jerry Weber is an attorney for the plaintiffs. Our primary concern is really that what the law prohibits is so vague, is so unclear, that teachers err on the the side of taking a red pen to their own lesson plans. World history teacher Jeff Corkle says he struggles with that. Like if I have them read a quote or something from a speech of Adolf Hitler, of course we know it's wrong. Corkle teaches in the DeKalb schools and uses primary source documents in class. Or civil rights activists criticizing the United States, like the primary source is implying that the United States is inherently racist, even though that's not what I'm teaching in class, the students should have an opportunity to see all of these viewpoints. The law's supporters say it's not meant to interfere with the accurate teaching of history or the implementation of advanced placement courses. But Corkle says language in the statute seems to contradict that. He says not knowing whether he's breaking the law is stressful. To wonder at any moment, could the hammer come down for reasons that I'm not even quite sure of why? Attorney Jerry Weber says the plaintiffs have sent a letter to Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr about their intent to sue. You think that the law should not be enforced. Carr's office confirmed it's received the letter, but said it couldn't comment further. Martha Dalton, WABE News. And speaking of education, Clayton County Superintendent Marcy's Beasley will step down at the end of the school year. He has served in the post since May of 2017. Shortly after he was hired, he told WABE he planned to stay in Clayton for the long haul. I am not an individual who's looking to just get experience and hop to another community. That's just not who I am. I want to see this community grow, and I'm committed to the long-term process of growth. He announced his planned departure on Twitter yesterday. The school district has yet responded to requests for comment. Finally, since first making moves from her slutty vegan food truck in 2018, I've had all the sandwiches, Atlanta entrepreneur Pinky Cole has grown plant-based patties into a vegan empire. My engineer Kevin Rinker is all abuzz. It's a black-owned brand that's been expanding across the country, and now Pinky Cole has her own cookbook. Because when I tell you so many people come to me like, Pinky, I'm so proud of you. Like, you make us all proud. Like, we're on the journey with you. That, to me, tells me that it's more than just food. That's right. And I just heard she has a dip at Costco. Go ahead on, Pinky. Now, uh, (laughs) she's on a book tour. She will be here in her hometown of Atlanta at the Buckhead Theater tomorrow night. And, of course, Pinky Cole has been a guest on Closer Look a few times. We're all proud of her. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. You've heard of Google, of course, and now there's the philanthropic arm of the tech giant, Google.org. And according to its stated mission, quote, we bring the best of Google to help solve some of humanity's biggest challenges, combining funding, innovation, and technical expertise to support underserved communities and provide opportunity for everyone, close quote. That also includes initiatives under its economic empowerment umbrella. Well, recently, Spelman College, love that place. I love all institutions before y'all send me an email. Just thought I'd say that. They announced a $5 million grant from Google.org for the Centers of Excellence for Minority Women in STEM. And, of course, we're going to talk all about that. So joining me now is Melanie Parker. She's Google's Chief Diversity Officer. And also, make sure I have this correct, joining me is Dr. Tasha Ennis, get that all the way, Associate Provost for Research at Spelman and the Principal Investigator of the Center of Excellence. Woo, that's a lot. Thank you both for taking the time. Thank you. Excited to join you tonight. I, I want to begin here because I've had so many conversations about STEM and and, and, and closing the, the gaps and inequities and disparities. So even in 2022, we still, that's, uh, Dr. Uh, Park, I'll start with you. I'm, uh, Dr. Tasha Ennis, I'm sorry. I'll start with you. This is still, have we closed the gap at all when it relates to women in STEM fields and particularly women of color? Well, Rose, thank you so much for having me on your show. And I want to start off by saying thank you to Melanie Parker and to Google.org for this uh, significant investment in Spelman and the Center of Excellence. We are internally grateful. Have we made strides? I actually am a uh, Black woman in STEM. I'm an applied mathematician. And I think we have made strides. I think there is uh, far more to go. And so that's why this investment from Google.org so that we can have data to address some of these systemic inequities is really helpful. What do you think, Um, Melanie Parker? How far have we come? I agree with I agree with Dr. Ennis. I think we've made some significant strides, but I think what where we're at right now is how do we bring all that together? Like how do we look at the lived experiences of black women in STEM? So not just that they got into STEM and they're gainfully employed in STEM, but how are they progressing? How are they being treated? What are the roadblocks and the barriers? And I think this is what's so exciting about what Dr. Ennis is doing in Spelman College is really working to provide a database so that we can make that visible. And so, you know, one of the things that I like to point out is that we think about black community, we're either hyper visible or invisible. And Mm -hmm. what we're looking to do is to normalize that experience. And that's what's so keen about what Dr. Ennis is doing um, with this database and with this center. Well, let's back up a little bit. Dr. Ennis, let's tell our listeners when we talk about this center of excellence, what is this all about? Yes, thank you for that question. So the Center of Excellence for Minority Women in STEM, we were 
uh, deemed a center of excellence uh, and given seed funding by the Department of Defense. And that was in recognition of our track record of producing Black women who go on to earn doctoral degrees in sciences and engineering. We've been number one for at least the last decade. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there are three pillars of excellence that we've uh, used as the foundation for the Center of Excellence, research, academic advancement, uh, leadership and professional development. And so in terms of thinking about those aspects that help and prepare our students to go out to become not only STEM professionals, but STEM leaders, we feel like these are the critical aspects. I, when we start this conversation, I asked you all about how far we've come. I want to now switch to how far we still need to, I guess, reach young women at an early age. I, I remember I had someone on years ago. They were talking about coding. It was a program they were introducing young kids to coding. And they were talking about three- and four-year-olds. And I was like, wow. I mean, are we still seeing that perhaps that's the best way before they even get to Spelman? We've got to reach these kids at an early age. I would say, yes, that is what we're saying. Um, and you have to reach kids very early, not only to ignite or to spark their interest and, you know, to really, what we're trying to do is also change the face of what engineering looks like so that young black girls see themselves growing up to be engineers as well. But it's also really important to have the right curriculum. And so, you know, once you get into middle school, your math curriculum determines not just college acceptance, but the major that you're able to go into as well. So we're also trying to impact like the math curriculum and the science curriculum that black women are taking as well. Dr. Ennis, you're shaking your head in agreement. Take that a little bit further. Why is well, that so I, important? I, I definitely agree with the curriculum development. And in addition, um, having quality teachers, um, having mentors. So when we think about our Spelman students um, being mentors to K through 12 students or being role models. So I think so often it's important for others to see ourselves as a mathematician, as a scientist. And so I think that's so important. And with this data dashboard, um, the, the idea is that we could develop uh, curricular modules using data for teachers and students um, so that we can get to them early, so that they can get excited because STEM is exciting. Well, okay, STEM is exciting. I just got an email from a listener that says, yes, my daughter loves math. Um, thank you for that, by the way. So, okay, with this data, with this dashboard, take our listeners through how this will work and, and also the metrics you'll use to gauge its effectiveness. I know there's two questions in there. No, that's an excellent question. And, and I have to start off by saying uh, I want to acknowledge Nicole Brenner, who is uh, the lead uh, giver um, in CS uh, education, and she worked very, very closely uh, with us for this historical gift. But in terms of next steps, we're going to be working very, very closely with Google.org fellows who are going to help us to design the dashboard. So think about um, the data we want, the visualizations, the stories, the users. Um, and so we're having a design sprint um, in a couple of weeks where our internal researchers and UX designers are going to meet together to figure out, well, what's the initial design? What do we want this to do for the world? So it will take a, a collaborative to decide what you want to do, what type of information you want to get, and then from that, you all will, will roll it out. Are there any other examples that, that are out there that we can point to? 
Yes, actually, there are uh, some examples, and we did include those uh, in, in the press release. One of the things, so I used to work at the National Science Foundation, and there's the National Center um, for um, NCSDS, and I apologize for not uh, remembering what it all stands for. Um, I think it's scientific and, and educational statistics, but there's data on um, STEM education, uh, K through 12, um, doctoral degrees, but the data is not usually parsed out by gender and race. Mm -hmm. There is no location where you can get information on women of color in STEM. And that's what this data dashboard will do. And Melanie Park, I want to bring you back into the conversation because I understand that this dashboard, you all hope, will also include the impact of women who are indigenous and Latina, and that this is the largest single grant that Google.org has awarded specifically for women of color in STEM. Why is this so important? That's exactly right. Well, you know, think about the untold stories of black women in STEM. I mean, many of us, the first time we thought about black women in STEM was when we saw the movie Hidden Figures a few years ago. We all couldn't believe that black women played, you know, that role in history. Well, what this research will do, this center will do, it will become the go-to for research looking at the experiences of black women in STEM, and it will scale to include Latina, as well as Native American and indigenous women. And so these untold stories are in, they are key to unlocking the systemic barriers that women of color, particularly underrepresented minority, like truly face. And so what's important is not just that we bring the data, we make it available, it becomes the go-to, but what does data do? Mm -hmm. Data unlocks and it unleashes. And that's what we need to do for, you know, this whole cadre of underrepresented um, women. So I want to ask you all this because it appears, and again, we've had so many conversations about this. So we have the initiatives, we have the projects, and you're developing, but how then do you, because you can't force anybody to hire anyone. So how do you make sure that we have these folks, we have these incredible minds, women of color, who are qualified, who are ready, now comes that next step. Like at Google, for example, Ms. Parker, how do you, and you all had some issues now, I want to be fair too, y'all had some issues with, with you know, that diversity and, and folks, you know, moving up the ladder there. So go ahead. Rose, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, at Google, we are leaders and we're learners, and we do both transparently. And as a Black woman, you know, my goal is to make sure that all Black women have lived experiences that enjoy rich career, rich culture, and that's why I wake up and come to work mm -hmm. every day. Okay, so you said y'all have learned. I know you're not the spokesperson, but what can you hope comes out of this, from whether it's Google or any other organization, in terms of when it comes you know, to go ahead. I was just gonna say at, at Google, like we are, we are committed to hiring Black women. We've set 2025 goals. We've more than doubled our Black population across Google, and there are so many jobs that will continue to become available um, for p women with STEM degrees. I was talking to the um, head of the Silicon Valley Leadership Group mm -hmm. a couple of months ago, and he was telling me that it's projected that California alone will have a million jobs like in STEM over the next decade. And so there is a gap 
that needs to be filled for um, engineers. And so it's a great career for black women, for Latino women, for indigenous women. But think about how we're going to close the economic mm -hmm. wealth gap by enjoying um, this type of career um, as well as the salary, the benefits that comes with that. And so we're from we're partnered and committed um, to help continue to close the gap. So, Dr. Ennis, when you hear what Melanie talks about, what they're doing at Google and then they're they're Listen, we know there are thousands, millions of other companies out there, too. Do you all talk to your students and, and sort of prepare them on how to navigate the career path you know, they've come through program, they've come through Spelman, wonderful program, they're going to continue on. What resources do y'all help beyond that? Uh, that's an excellent question. And I'm going to uh, go to something Melanie said. Um, really, this data dashboard and what we're doing at Spelman to prepare our students, we're making the invisible visible. Um, we have so many talented women of color that are really going out. Our tagline at Spelman is a choice to change the world. Mm -hmm. We prepare our students not only academically, but uh, leadership skills, um, innovation, and having them, giving them the voice to speak out against inequities. Um, we're all about social justice. So the different things that we do is we equip them, we prepare them, we let them know you may be the only one, mm -hmm. but you can do it because you are prepared. Um, and, and I just want to say this, our mission in the Center of Excellence for Minority Women in STEM is to be an exemplar for the nation as we equip empower and elevate women of color from historically underrepresented groups in STEM to thrive and lead. And that is what we want to do. And Dr. Ennis and Melanie Park, as we begin to wrap up, because then Dr. Ennis, I want to end with something that you just said. You know, yeah. if you could look into the STEM crystal ball, how do we go from you may be the only one to, oh, wow, this is great. It's a whole lot of folks like me up in here. Is there, do you give yourself a timeline? Do you say, you know, maybe the next decade, if I'm talking to Rose Scott, we won't even talk about this conversation? Or, or do you say, how do you gauge, you know, what's an, I don't want to say an acceptable number, but how do you assess that? That is the prayer and the dream. And what I'll say is that our students, and we have a very strong um, Spelman alumni network, is that we always make room for others to follow. And so that that's the goal, that we mm -hmm. just make a way for others to follow in our footsteps. And I, I can just collectively feel through the air all these Spelman alumni going, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Melanie Parker, what about you? You know, when when can we probably stop saying you may be the only one? Well, I think we'll be able to say um, you're not the only one when we continue to close these gaps. I'm a Hampton alum. We say let our lives do the singing for all you Hampton alum out there. <laughs> um, but, you know, this is a collective issue that we all have to solve. And so I think when we continue to lock arms and translate energy into action, that's when we're going to get there. All right. Melanie Parker, Google's chief diversity officer. Also, Dr. Tasha Ennis, associate provost for research at Spelman and the principal investigator of the Center of Excellence. Thank you both for taking the time. Good conversation. I got emails. Folks want to know how they can get involved. I'm just going to tell them to go to the Great. website. <laughs> yes. And contact me. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. All right. Y'all take care. Thank you.
Closer Look begins with C. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. You know, it may seem like a long time ago, but at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, it became clear millions of renters would need assistance. And landlords, of course, need their rent money. Now, the exact number, it varies, but it's been estimated renters were behind tens of billions of dollars in back rent. There was federal, state, and county funding that was earmarked for landlords and tenants. The state of Georgia received $989 million. And you may recall we've had officials on to talk about the application process. Then weeks ago, it was announced the Department of Community Affairs stopped taking applications for its rental assistance program. So let's talk through those reasons. Join me now again, as she always has, the Deputy Commissioner for the Georgia Department of Community Affairs, Tanya Currington-Curry. Thank you, Deputy Commissioner, for taking the time again. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Rose, for having us on again. I'm excited to be here and give some updates about our program. So let's back up and just want to make sure and get some clarity, because I mentioned that $989 million in federal funding. Was that in total from the CARES Act and additional funding from the Biden administration, from both from Trump and Biden administration? How much did y'all totally receive here? We did receive $989 million. It was uh, actually in two tranches. The first part came from uh, the past administration, and the second part came uh, with through the American Rescue Plan and those funds. But it was a total of $889 million for rental assistance. $889 or $900? I'm sorry, $989 million okay. in funding, yes. And I think I asked you all this. Um, were there any hiccups in terms of logistics, in terms of infrastructure, technical, were you all able to, as folks, the application process online, were there any glitches or any issues now that you can look back on and say, wow, I wish we could have had something different in place? You know, when we uh, first spoke, um, we were probably just getting the program started. And we were very pleased at that time that we were able to stand up the program in about uh, a month's time and get a vendor in place and get the portal operating and all of that. Um, And so we've been very pleased overall with the way that the program has gone for the past year and a half and the way that we've been able to expend uh, all of these funds in a way that has helped many, many Georgians through these pandemic times. So just to be clear, and and most of this went to landlords or to tenants or a combination of both or mostly landlords? It all went to landlords and tenants. So we've been successful in keeping over 51,000 tenants safely housed and paying those past due rental arrearages to about 8,000 landlords. So uh, you may recall that the way the program worked, both landlords and tenants were able to apply, but they both had to participate. Mm -hmm. So a landlord could initiate the um, application or a tenant could initiate the application. And so we received um, hundreds of thousands of applications and have been able to process them and get over 85% of those funds out the door. Were you all able to collect data on what areas throughout the state received the most? And maybe you haven't been able to do that. Are we talking about Metro Atlanta or just overall throughout the state of Georgia? You know, we uh, we do have that data because it's broken down by county. Uh, I can say that we were we've been able to expend these funds in all counties throughout the state. So we've touched every county in the state. Um, obviously, just due to metropolitan areas, mm-hmm. we're, you're going to see uh, much more renters in, in the metropolitan areas. So that's going to be, you know, obviously the Atlanta area, uh, the Columbus area, the mm-hmm. Macon area. Um, those types of things. But we, we've we had a statewide distribution, and really anybody who needed to access these funds was able to access them through the statewide um, 
process. So 51,000 applicants, 8,000 landlords. Deputy Commissioner, are you telling me that you all Yes, 51,000 tenants. Tenants and, and 8,000 landlords. So are you saying you all used all of the funding, every bit of it? We've got a little bit left. Um, we are in the process of um, utilizing all of the uh, remaining portion of the funds. So as I mentioned, about 85% has been expended. Um, you may know that um, we're no longer taking new applications. And so we're processing the applicant applications that are in the pipeline. And we're going to keep doing that until uh, every dollar is gone, until all of the applications are processed. Of course, you all have received some criticism in a piece from the AJC, and this is a quote. The DCA put some tenants in a pretty bad position, said Lindsay Siegel, Director of Housing Advocacy at Legal Aid of Atlanta. If they knew they were running out of money, they should have told them so they could plan. What's your response to that? We did, um, you know, we did, we did, um, are aware of, of obviously that communication that was in the AJC. But um, as you know, and as um, Legal Aid knows, and Georgia Legal Aid and Atlanta Legal Aid, um, we've had this program going for about a year and a half now, and, and um, the media about it has been far and wide to every corner of the state. Um, of course, these were temporary stimulus funds, and the intent of the funding was to get the monies out to people as quickly as possible. So it was never intended to be um, an ongoing source of funding. We don't have that ongoing source of funding. And so we, we feel like we've absolutely made everyone who needed to um, access these funds available. And we certainly wanted them to, um, we didn't want to get ahead of ourselves and have more people applying than we had funding for. And so we kind of just gauged it. Um, again, the portal is not closed, but we're processing the applications that are currently in the portal. And as that's as of October 28th. So um, we've got about 12 to 15% of the funding left and uh, many applications to process. And we're going to keep processing those applications and continuing to help Georgians with the rest of the funding. So when you all just had this uh, kind of abrupt message on your website, though, uh, Deputy Commissioner, can you understand someone saying, well, look, when y'all got to maybe around, you had dispersed $500 million or $600 million, you could have maybe... Could you have done a better job of, of letting the public know, hey, we're reaching this level if you haven't applied? I think we I think we might have had you all on twice. I mean, yes. Are you saying that uh, you feel like y'all couldn't have done anything better to let folks know? Well, you know, it's not a matter of um, it's it's really not a matter of us thinking that we couldn't have done anything better because there's always there's always room for doing things different ways or or even for improvement. What we do know is that we've had a steady application um, flow. Um, we get many, many applications on a daily basis. And so we knew that we had a pipeline of people that we were going to be able to help and people that have had their applications in the pipeline for, um, you know, at, at least 30 days. And so in making that decision, we had to decide how much funding we would have based on applications that were already in the pipeline. And so it 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 could have been uh, perhaps a, a little bit um uh, shorter time period. But as of October 28th, um, we felt like that was the good point to cut it off and, and to move forward into November and December with just processing the applications that we have. I want to be clear. Are you saying that you all were in contact with folks who had, who had their applications in, but maybe had not been processed to tell them that, you know, it is possible that there won't be any funding? I want to be clear so our listeners know. 
Yes, everyone who had an application in the portal got a message saying that we are still going to be processing your applications. Now, if you didn't have an application in, then you were only receiving the, the regular notifications that the program is available and, and uh, you know, the emails and the social media and the billboards and all that type of thing. But everyone who has an application in the portal knows that we are processing, processing their application. So it is still possible then for those applications that, are, that were in before you all made this announcement, it is possible because you said you had about 15% left of that $989 million. Yes. Because that's a significant amount. You can still help some folks. Oh, yes. And that's the that's the complete and Rose, that's the complete intent. Those people that had their application in as of that date are absolutely still being considered. Their applications are still being processed. They still have, um, you know, a processor that's working with them. So they should be going back to their portal, uh, looking to see if there's a status, if documents are still needed. All of that, all of those applications are still being processed if they were already as of October 28th. Can you address also from that AJC article that says that some tenants some tenants say they were already approved for assistance, then that approval was removed from the portal. Does that mean... You know, we get a lot of communications from tenants um, that are um, working through the process, and it, it's difficult to um, address that scenario without looking or knowing the specifics of a tenant situation. But anybody who's in the portal and that is uh, has an application that has been started and it's being processed, they're going to be it's going to be worked to the to the fullest extent. Now, does that mean that everybody's going to get the funding? There may be people that for some reason don't apply. Maybe they didn't meet the income limits. Maybe they did not get um, the documentation that they needed from the landlord. So there's still there's still parts of the process sure. that are going on. But if you've been course, but if you've been approved for assistance, they're going to get something. It, it exactly. If you, if your portal says that you are approved, your your funding should be coming. There are only there are a variety of different statuses that uh, the tenants will see in the portal. Things like. Um, you know, uh, documentation needed, please contact your, uh, please check your emails, please contact your processor, those types of things, as well as approved or den or denied even. And are you all able to determine if indeed what the tenants told the AJC that, hey, I was approved and then that status was removed. Can you all determine if that happened? Um, I can't determine if that has happened. That's not a process that that happens within our system. But I can assure you that if a tenant has either a, a denied or an approved status, that, that it's going to be fulfilled in either one of those ways. Okay. And for everyone who's been approved, if you all, I mean, is it likely that it could exceed that the 15 percent of the 989 will y'all have some surplus that you can i mean according to governor kemp we got a lot of money so you all will be able to meet the whatever the, it's going to be the assistance needs for those who've been approved even if it exceeds that 15 percent that's left so i can't um we don't have any funds beyond the um the funding that is in place but mm -hmm. i can assure you and again that was part of the october 28th decision that we have projected out how much we think that we would need. And that projection was based on the applications that were in the portal and the amounts that were re requested. So, it, you know, it's obviously not going to match up to the dollar, to the exact dollar, mm -hmm. uh, because there are a variety of different factors going on, but it, it's going to work 
based on what people mm -hmm. have put in. And that's why it was actually a good thing for us to uh, let the public know we're no longer accepting applications. We're going to be processing and funding the applications that are before us. So it is extremely likely that we're going to be able to fund all of the applications that are uh, that are in the portal at this time. And just, you know, in that AJC article, there is a tenant that her name is in there and she said we've been approved. I went back, looked at the portal October 27th, said it was denied. Her name is there. So you can go back to that. Can you investigate that for that tenant? We absolutely uh, can investigate, and I, I I probably can't speak to the exact tenants, you know, in a in a live format. But um, that tenant can actually absolutely can seek clarifications through the process. No, her name is there though, and she says yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I'm just saying I'm just not at liberty to speak, sure. you know, about you know a specific situation. But she absolutely can um, get further clarification through the process, and she even can appeal the process. Oh, so there is an appeals process. There is. All right. We will stay on top of this. I appreciate you coming on, Deputy Commissioner Tanya Currington-Curry with the Georgia Department of Community Affairs. You all have always come on and answered the questions. We appreciate that as well. We're going to stay on top of that. We want you to come back when this is all over and sort of dissect just how many folks you all helped. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rose, for having us on. And again, um, you know, it's been our pleasure to dispense these funds, 800 over $850 million dispensed already is not a small number. No. And we're going to use the balance to continue to help Georgians stay housed. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. There is a partnership between the Georgia Institute of Technology, or as we plain folks say, Georgia Tech, and the City of Atlanta Office of the Mayor. Well, they're partnering to launch the Center for Urban Research. And in a nutshell, the focus is to address socioeconomic inequities through research and community partnerships. And we've talked about that word before, partnerships. So let's find out more by welcoming David Edwards. He's director for the Center of, for Urban Research. Welcome to the program. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Rose. Good to see you again. You know, I just had the conversation with the APD police chief, and he talked about partnerships, and that it takes partnerships to get things done, maybe not just in Atlanta, but throughout all of the, our nation here. How did this partnership come about between Georgia Tech and then the mayor's office, and, and why this Center for Urban Research? Well, in the wake of the Black Lives Matters movement uh, in, in the spring of 2020, we started having some conversations locally about well, what what is the real structural response to this and and what can we do really to more fundamentally address the root causes of a lot of this unrest and uh so Shirley Franklin and Egbert Perry and several others started having conversations with nonprofits with academics about what we could be doing in a more organized way to change public policies that might improve the conditions particularly in our most distressed neighborhoods and as we were doing that we ended up having conversations with some folks at Georgia Tech and the President Cabrera was in the middle of completing really the, the strategic plan for Georgia Tech that was mm -hmm. going to be dedicated towards improving conditions and closing racial equity gaps in the city. And so it just seemed like a natural place to create a center that could be focused on this topic. And, and let me ask you, are you aware of there is there are there similar type of centers or partnerships in any part of the country? 
there are centers in academic institutions focused on, on urban issues, et cetera. But I think this is the first one that's really had this kind of partnership with a mayor and a city government to work collaboratively, to really serve as a platform for collaboration for the, for the work that we're doing in the neighborhood. So it's really, I think Mayor Dickens and his unique commitment to uh, closing racial equity gaps through place-based transformation, I think has really created, I think, a unique opportunity for us. So someone listening says, okay, is this more of a, of a think tank where you're going to bring people together and you come up with ideas and then you try to find those other partners to implement them? How exactly will this work? Well, it's going to really have three three components. One is what you would expect in a university-based uh, a center, which is research, program evaluation, data, all, all the stuff that really drives a lot of the thinking behind this work. But we also, that's the first piece. And the second piece is gonna be collaboration. So bringing everyone who's involved in this work in the neighborhoods, so nonprofits, public sector agencies, um, community organizations, bringing them together and giving them a chance to figure out, well, what should we be doing in our neighborhood mm -hmm. and specific to our neighborhood, what should be the plan going forward? And then in the last piece is really the implementation uh, side of this. So we're going to provide technical assistance to these neighborhoods mm -hmm. with feet on the ground to really make sure the work gets done in a way that it, uh, that advances the, the vision for the neighborhood. Let's give our listeners an example, because one of the current projects is this neighborhood improvement planning and you, which you're the lead on. And, and I guess at the core of this is that you all will facilitate and come up with some type of project management for neighborhood improvement plans that, that could mean a lot there's a lot under that yeah well there's the we have six of these that are really underway right now and one example would be in thomasville heights as you're aware mm -hmm. we had a, a major catastrophe there with forest cove it was a mm -hmm. real fire drill to deal with a, a, a crumbling uh multi-family apartment complex and it was a whole process for for getting the residents there out and into safer housing but what that has done is create an opportunity to say, well, we've got assets in this neighborhood. We've got the, the Forest Cove apartments itself. We've got public housing property that has not been redeveloped. that has been sitting vacant for, for over a decade. There are some other public assets. There's now an empty elementary school. Mm -hmm. So the question is, well, what do you do with all these assets? And how do, you, how do you invest in them in a way that generates a healthy, thriving neighborhood? And the way you do that really is just to get with the neighborhood, get with the leadership, Get with the nonprofits that have been working there and let's think about what kinds of investments should we be making and so we're in the process of developing a really a small area master plan for thomasville heights that includes education housing transportation green space public infrastructure all the things that neighborhoods depend on and we will build the business case what we call business case for investment that will bring public dollars philanthropic dollars commercial dollars to that neighborhood and that we hope will generate a healthy thriving place of, uh, over the next few years. And I want to I want to focus on something that you said, because often and you, you've been around Atlanta and, and this is probably not just unique to Atlanta, but so many neighborhoods feel like when it comes to these new initiatives and projects, often they are let let left out of the planning process. You know, it's it's and I can understand someone seeing folks coming into their community and and you feel like, OK, are you going to make sure that we are involved in this process are you making sure that the community, whether it's community leaders or longtime legacy residents, that if they want to, they can be a part of this, too? Or is it just strictly you all have a set of folks that you want to work with? No, it all comes from the bottoms up, Rose, and it, it really begins with, with the residents. And one of the challenges we face is that in some neighborhoods, you have more of what we'd call civic infrastructure, so more neighborhood-based organizations than other neighborhoods. 
And so in some cases you have to build it over time and kind of help catalyze the development of that. In other neighborhoods, like places like Grove Park, for example, which is another focus area, mm-hmm. you've got you've got a very active neighborhood association, you've got the Grove Park Foundation, you've got a lot of work that's been going on there for the last 10 years, really under the purpose-built communities effort. So as a consequence of that, you have lots of people to work with. In fact, you've already got a lot of plans or that have already been done. In a place like Grove Park, this is it's more about implementing what the neighborhood has already agreed to, what they've already uh, developed plans around. In places like Thomasville Heights, you're starting more from scratch because right. it really hasn't been work and you've got to you've got to build it up. But at the end of the day, all of this has to be not only I don't like the term community engagement. I think you need community ownership. You need the community to feel as if this is their work and that, that this is their plan and that they have a stake in its outcome. How do you all do that and empower them to do that and work through that when also you have outside factors that you can't control? And that is maybe a developer coming in or a and not necessarily that it's going to be a bad thing because I'll get an email about that. But, you know, you know, a, a big tech company coming in or moving adjacent adjacent to that neighborhood. I mean, how do you make sure that you all can work through all of that? Because those are factors that you can't control. You mean a tech company like Microsoft, for example? Is that what you're getting out of there? Of course, really? Microsoft yeah. or Google or anybody. Well, let's take Microsoft as an example, which I think is a really uh, important one, only because it's really going to be the biggest private invest, single private investment I think well, this city has ever has ever mm-hmm. experienced. So Microsoft, is, as most of your listeners will know, has bought 90 acres off of Hollowell Parkway in the middle of Grove Park, right next to the Westside Park. They're planning a, a large corporate yes. campus there could bring mm-hmm. as many as 15,000 residents. So the question is, how do you make sure that that investment rebounds to the benefit of the neighborhood? And to their credit, Microsoft has engaged deeply with the neighborhood, and they're part of this team that we've assembled to to develop the, the investment plan for for Grove Park. And you and and so in those kinds of circumstances, it's quite it's it's in fact analogy. It's actually necessary to have the own private owners of property at the table because they have these assets that you want to include. And so, and the good news is, in most of these places that we're working, we have we have developers who want to be part of this process. They see. That whether many of them see that this is as part of their mission really is to advance the interests of the neighbors, but the, the, the also they have obviously profit and loss interests as well. And so it's, it's going to be beneficial to them if the neighborhood also improves with them. So there's usually an alignment of interest in that regard. Usually it is, but you and I both know that that's not always the case. So, that's but right. if you're telling me that you're going to make sure that residents and legacy residents and folks who live in that community, who can, is something you can't control, maybe be able to stay in that community, that they're going to be part of the process. Will the students at Georgia Tech also be involved in this center as well? Absolutely. In fact, part of the reason to do the center is to channel all this great student and academic energy that's done. There's a, a surprising amount of work, Rose, you may, you, given the folks that you talk to, you probably know as much as I do about this, but there's an, an enormous amount of academic research that's being done, whether it be in health, mm-hmm. education, housing, locally, that frankly, you know, when I spent eight years at the in the Franklin administration, we didn't take advantage of all that. Mm-hmm. And and the question is, how do you take advantage? Of, how do you put that to use? And so we now have, I think, eight different projects that the center is already sponsoring that's addressing specific questions to advance this work and this agenda that the mayor has laid out and his part and his partners. So we're already channeling that energy. I'll be I'm teaching a course at Georgia Tech this spring, and we will have student teams that will actually go out and work in the neighborhoods and, and answer specific questions that we need answered, not just academic exercises, but actual 
work that we need to that we will leverage in the work going forward. And then finally, and this may be a little bit too early to determine, but you tell me if you're going to talk about the effect effectiveness of this center, and you know the work that you all have going on with these projects. Do you give yourself a timeline in terms of assessing? Hey, this is working. This is not working. Or hey, we need to scrap this and start over. What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I think the effectiveness of the center, since it is a platform for collaboration, will be the participation of those collaborators. And mm -hmm. so what we're really trying to create is a place where all of these folks are doing this work, whether it be city, whether it be uh, APS, whether it be nonprofits, really take full advantage of this opportunity. And we're going to try to leverage this work over the course of this mayor's term and see where we are, frankly. And we'll, we'll see whether this is actually delivering. Are you looking for folks also to be collaborate, collaborators? Do you need folks right now? Do you need to tell folks, hey, we need some input from this sector or folks who have an interest in this? If you are doing work in neighborhoods, really, if that's that's the kind of bar that we've set. If you're doing any kind of work in neighborhoods, really trying to help improve conditions in neighborhoods, we want to be a partner of yours. And this is a place I think you not only can you work, but you can also find other collaborators. So absolutely, please uh, go to our website um, at the Georgia Tech on the Georgia Tech uh, the Center for Urban Research at Georgia Tech. And please let us know how you can, uh, if you'd like to participate in one way or the other, we we would love to uh, kind of cast a wide net for, for collaborators. I ask folks this question all the time because Atlanta is still, I think, you know, trying to figure out its identity. You ask people that question, you'll get a whole bunch of different answers. But what is Atlanta's identity as it relates to the service to its people and its residents? And, and what concerns do you have, especially in this area where you're working with socioeconomic issues? Well, you know, Atlanta should be a leader in this space. Um, we should be a national model for how we are eliminated, really eliminating the legacy of our decades of public policies and private actions that have segregated our city, that have concentrated poverty. We are not doing nearly enough um, in that space uh, and to really lead the country in that. And so that's, that's really what this this work is, is, is intending to do. And that's what I think Mayor Dickens is trying to do, is just to show the way, but how do you get this right? How do you do mm -hmm. this in a way that protects the legacy of the city while also creating opportunities for, particularly for families and youth to thrive? David Edwards, director for the Center for Urban Research, the new Center for Urban Research. It's a partnership with Georgia Tech and the city of Atlanta, the office of the mayor. Thank you, Mr. Edwards, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to see you, Rose. Same here. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. You can always send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like because it's free. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.